Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. Lean in to your founder's story. People want to support people and customers are learning that there is a human behind their restaurant. If they didn't know it before, they, they really know it now. So find ways to tell your story. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. If hosting this show has made one thing incredibly clear, it's that teamwork, data, and resources will be what help us thrive post-pandemic. Understanding that, Yelp and I have created a cheat sheet, offering insight into consumer behavior, popular trends, and free tools and resources to help you get open and stay open. You can download that guide at joshcopel.com forward slash resources. Didn't write that down? There's a link in the show notes as well. What does the COO of a $350 million restaurant conglomerate have to teach independent restaurateurs? More than we could imagine. Kat Cole worked her way up the ranks from waitress to executive vice president of Hooters, went on to become the president of Cinnabon, and now sits as the COO of Focus Brand, a corporation consisting of household names like Schlotsky's and Jamba Juice. On this episode, we tackle strategies for growth, creating multiple revenue streams, connecting intimately with your customer, and creating a plan to thrive today and tomorrow. We begin by discussing the importance of education in Kat's life. I I think education is the higher order concept, is the great equalizer, it is the great opportunity provider. So whatever brings someone to a moment or a path of learning, I say all in, do whatever you can. It will always be worth the time, energy, effort, etc. What's changing for me is the the dominance that higher ed, formal higher ed once had, you know, the monopoly it once had on providing really relevant education. I still think higher education, universities, degrees, are still one of the greatest privileges um, of our time. And in most cases, if someone has access to it, should pursue it. In my time, so that was 98, 99, um, so closer to 2000 when I dropped out. And yeah, 1999. And I'd only been in for two years. I was the first person in my family to get into college, but I had a compelling alternative. I didn't just think, College is dumb. Why do I need it? You know, I really appreciated it because no one in my family had it and I was learning and I did enjoy it. But what I enjoyed more was traveling around the world, opening restaurants. And I was um, not making a lot of money doing it, but I was making enough to pay my bills and it turned into a career unexpectedly. So I had a compelling alternative. So my advice is if you have a compelling alternative that is giving you education, which my international franchising experience was absolutely giving me education, follow the compelling alternative. If you don't have a compelling alternative, get in school, stay in school. It is still an unbelievable path. And now if you are just entering that stage post 
high school, man, the world is your banana. <laughs> like, just learn, learn from free classes, learn from Harvard workshops that are free to sit and audit a class. You know, the access is so phenomenal. And I do think companies are starting to evolve their, not as fast as they should, but starting to evolve their requirements and um, what they say is mandatory for prerequisites for positions. And so as corporations move in that direction of more flexible prerequisites, I mean, this thing's just gonna take off into the world of flexible ed. What about your kids? Do you care if they go to college? Do you have a dog in that fight or, or would you prescribe the same thing for your own children? <laughs> I think exactly the same for my kids. Yeah, my kids are one in three. And so my husband and I talk about this all the time. It's like, will they drive? Will their friends go to a, what we call college today? I don't think so. Um, and so, man, if they can travel, learn, have internships, apprenticeships, maybe those come back. I hope they do um, in the next several years. I'm a huge fan of apprenticeships, skill-based mentorship, paid experiences. Yeah, I mean, our kids' names are Ocean and Arrow, so who knows what they're gonna end up doing. They might just be like surfing around the world, and that's cool, we're kinda hippies, so it's fine. Um, I just, I, I hope I hope they love learning and I hope they see and that we as parents bring them to the understanding that learning and growth is what matters, how is not. Did you get value from your MBA or was it a function of trying to open more doors for yourself? It was both, uh, maybe not open more doors, but the conversation I had with a mentor was the opposite, which is she said, you know, if, if you wanna get a, a a CEO role or a president role. I was vice president at Hooters at the time, but I was well known in the industry. I'd run a ton of nonprofits, mentored a lot of people, uh, was active in the industry's associations. And she called me one day and she just said, you know, if you wanna get a job in the industry, you're not gonna have a problem. People know you, um, your skills speak beyond the resume, but if you wanna go anywhere else, you will not get through their HR filter. And when she said that, I mean, I was a 20, 28 year old when I had this conversation with her, vice president of a company doing just under a billion in sales. I didn't need the degree to have a dope gig. Like I had a dope gig at a young age, but just hearing her say doors will be closed. That should not be. I thought, why would I want any doors to be closed if there is a way? And then I thought, man, I don't want to go back and get my undergraduate. I've tried like the occasional online class. Either I lack the commitment or it lacks the quality. It's just, I don't see that making sense. And then she said, there are business schools that offer executive programs where nights, weekends, you still have to take the GRE or the GMAT. You still have to score higher than the average you know, entrance exam. And you've got to have a lot of either letters or advocates or ways that the school can know you're a risk worth taking but it's possible. And it was those two things for me that were the driver of pursuing an MBA, even though I didn't have a bachelor's, and they in fact were the outcomes. So I didn't want doors closed. I guess the other way to say what you said is doors to be open, but that was more my focus. I wasn't trying to use the degree like many people are for a specific door to be opened. I just didn't want to lose the optionality. And that was worth it for me and the fact that I could do it more flexibly and not have to go back and make up everything. Those were the two things 
um, that enabled it as an option for me. And then the benefit was also, I rounded out my financial acumen, which as an operator, I knew it intuitively, but I couldn't speak at the level of analysts, attorneys, investors, you know, that helped me, but I could have gotten that now today by taking an online course yeah. or listening in on clubhouse conversations or listening to VCs podcasts, right? I can get that now that wasn't available then. And so I really did level up certain technical areas of knowledge and, and it, it reinforced some areas of confidence for me that I was as good in business as I thought I was, but not because I just had success in one company because I was recognizing where I sat and where my decisions fell relative to other well-known um, business cases. You brought up mentorship and you're an advocate for, I, I think you called it mini mentorship. Yeah. Mentoring moments. Uh, can you talk to me about that? Yeah. I think growing up, you know, child of a single parent, alcoholic father, worked at Hooters. It's not as if I was this super appealing mentee where people thought, oh, she's high potential. You know, I, I was, but it didn't look like that on paper. And so I didn't have mentors or a bunch of people around wrapping their arm around me from other industries saying, let me teach you, let me give you perspective. I had amazing leaders in the company, clearly, who gave me opportunities and developed me um, and coached me and that I learned from, but not those really impartial external mentors. And so my way to get at it was to realize that there was something to be learned from everyone, a peer, an entry-level person, a CEO, and it was far less daunting to say, hey, do you have five minutes? I heard you've dealt with this. I'm about to do it. I'd love to know what your advice would be, or I'd love to hear one thing you learned. Just a mentoring moment, five minutes at the water cooler, quick phone call, not heavy lift for them. I'm not asking them to be my mentor or, or my sponsor, you know, and put their name on me. I just want to learn for a minute. Right. And then there were people over time that I would learn from, and they would then occasionally reach out because they noticed I was receiving that information and putting it in practice that organically grew into what someone might call a mentor-like person, but without all the formality and the monthly check-ins and a program around it. So mentoring moments are so accessible to anyone and actually allowed me to 10x the mentoring and the feedback and the perspective that I got um, over what I would have had from a more traditional mentor. Well, and I think you bring up a valid point. I would say the secret to my success in the hospitality industry stems from everything I learned from outside of the industry. We, we have a tendency to live in an echo chamber, right? Yeah. Where it's chefs talking to other chefs about chef shit. And <laughs> right. Chef, chef, chef. So chef. And every, everybody's in agreement, right? Like it, it's, it's this echo chamber. And so what, what are some of the valuable lessons that you were able to pull from outside of the industry and bring into it? When I was leading the Women's Food Service Forum, so I was the chair of the board um, of a large women's development organization in all, it's all hospitality. So hotels, um, convenience and fuel, CPG, distribution, manufacturing, and restaurants. Um, there, the woman, there was a woman who was the CEO of the organization and she was so busy and so sought after and beloved and so hard to access from a formal perspective. And I had a relationship with her from being the CEO of the board, being the chair of the board, and she was the CEO, but not a lot of one-on-one -on -one time. And I went through a period where my story was in the media a lot. Um, and 
and it was almost excessive. It was Undercover Boss, it was Fortunes 40 Under 40. It was a lot of things between 2013, 2014, and it felt very heavy. And I had no PR person. All of it was inbound. And I started to get some feedback that it looked like I was promoting myself. And I wasn't. It was doing nothing. It was just, I was just being responsive and thought it was super positive because it was certainly benefiting my company um, in terms of awareness, attention, franchise leads, sales, people wanting to do business with us. And it was really good for young women, especially that saw and heard the story. But I started to hear whatever you want to call it, haters or, you know, whatever that, oh, she's clearly making it more about herself than other people. And that couldn't have been farther from the truth. And I just went dark. I mean, I stopped. I said no to everything. I said no to every interview. It just weighed on me. I worried about the optics of that. And um, I I asked her, I, I told her about it and asked her if it was the right path. And it was a 10 minute conversation. And she had this really sharp, clear perspective, which was how dare you not leverage the platform you're being given? You know, who she was a very religious woman. I'm one of those spiritual, not religious people. She was very religious. And um, she said, how, you know, how dare you not leverage the gifts you're being given by the almighty? And, um, and who are you to kind of hold your light dampen your light, dampen your voice when it's most needed in the industry. And it was just, and she gave me some stories about when people said things about her as one of the first African-American female CEOs in manufacturing and in distribution and how hard that was for her to navigate and how she made decisions about how visible she was and how she'd use her time. And that advice for me, not from restaurants, not from an operator, you know, tangential, was one of the most formative for me because it allowed me to reframe the way I looked at uh, using my own story in relation to an industry or a company and to rise above the fray and focus on positive intent, of course, know my true value and intentions, and to think more broadly about the impact relative to a little bit of noise. So it was deeply personal. Um, advice that transcends any industry and that I've used to remind myself over time. Now, how much of that, I, I guess that that throwing of shade, we'll call it, uh, <laughs> do, you, do you think that that had anything to do with you being a woman? I, I don't see anyone turning to Richard Branson and saying, hey, bro, you need to pipe down a bit, <laughs> yes. right? Tone it down. No more models on the back of the jet ski, please. <laughs> exactly, right? Like, do, do you think that that's, that's a situation like unique to your gender? Yeah, I mean, I looking back, I didn't call it that then because I was so in my own head. But looking back and seeing how that's played out for female tech founders, female CEOs, it's like, man, it. I don't know if it's because our sample size is smaller, and mm-hmm. so when something's going on, we stick out more relative to the group, and or just embedded misogyny you know, and or the the role we're supposed to play in people's hearts and minds, you know, be a good little girl and go keep your head down and go run that company. And now I see it. There is definitely a lot of that at play. Um, But true to form as a woman, right, I was worried about how that looked and um, if that would confuse people about my intentions and how dare anybody suggest I have a PR person, which everybody has and I didn't and was still getting that. So yeah, you know, looking back, I definitely see that now, but it just didn't even 
pop into my mind then. I was like, ah, it's just an unusual amount of media and people in our industry aren't that forward with their story and it makes people uncomfortable and I don't have to do it and I'm not getting paid any more or less for it. So why deal with the bullshit from Mm -hmm. it? Um, And then I realized, no, I should deal with the shade because it makes a lot of impact and inspires people. And to your point, now there are plenty of other people that not only have no problem when it comes their way inbound, make great effort (laughs) to go outbound (laughs) and tell their story. Yeah, you know, when I when I was doing research for the interview, I just and, and this is somewhat related. I, I saw this article and like the, the headline on the article was, you know, Hooters girl to, to president of the company. Um, and you know, I'm not sensitive. I've been in the hospitality industry for 20 yeah. years. I don't even know if I have feelings anymore. But when I when I read it, you know, it conjures an image, right? And and it could have said from server to president, right? It could have said that, but that wasn't the purpose of the title. The purpose of the title was to conjure an image of you in these little orange shorts, right? And now you're, you know, you're probably wearing the same outfit, but now you're sitting at a big desk. And it just, like, <laughs> like I really, you know, and I have a daughter, so I, I think differently. From the day she was born, I began mm-hmm. to see women and the role of women very differently, especially yeah. in business. But like I read that title and the article itself is fine. But yeah. the title like messed up in my opinion. Wouldn't you agree? At first I appreciated those headlines because they were, especially when I was running Cinnabon because no one wanted to talk about Cinnabon. So it was the only way to get that door open. And it was really good for the company and our franchisees. Like they didn't want to talk about Cinnabon but they wanted to talk about the former Hooters girl that was now a president. So I got the interview and then I would talk about Cinnabon. And over time, you know, over time, the Hooters thing became a footnote. But in those early days, it was the headline. And I was so honest that they wouldn't be talking to me otherwise, that I appreciated it. But then after like the first 9, 12 months, I'm like, okay, people get it. Not hard to find. And then I realized it didn't bother me, nor did I love it or appreciate it. I just thought, man, it's a shame. It, it just motivated me. Like I clearly need to big a big and build a much bigger business story so that this isn't what they want to talk about. So that my my now and my future is much bigger than my past. And that happened. You know, that happened organically over time. It's I think it's human nature, you know, the clickbait, the fact that people tend to lean toward whatever is more spicy, controversial, negative paradigm um, shifting. And so it's the click. So I learned to just focus on what's the content in the article. And it almost became a bit of a mission of mine to have it be such a bait and switch. Mm -hmm. Like you click on it and it's spicy. And then it's like channels, retail (laughs) ecosystem, growth, you know, (laughs) just like wah, wah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You have told a great uh, story, and and I want to I want to delve directly into that because there are many conversations that you've been a part of where people talk about management versus leadership, right? Because management is like just controlling someone else's behavior, whereas like leaders set a path and inspire people to follow along that path. You achieved a lot in a very short period of time. You were further along by your late twenties than most people are by their late forties, and it was because you made a consider like considered effort to lead as opposed to manage. Yeah. Where where did that idea come from? And and what were the individual elements along that path? I think it was a little bit of 
nature, you know, a little bit nurture. So the things that were organic is I've always been comfortable speaking up and helping others. And that is a bit of an elementary definition of leadership. Um, so so I, I do have a comfort with speaking up and I do have a genuine compulsion to help. And I always have, even as a child. I'm a hugger. Um, I pick people up when they fall, right? Just like that basic, those basic building blocks. And then there's the nurture part, the things that happened along the way. Leaving my dad when I was nine, I had to fill the role of co-parent in our house. I have two younger sisters. And so at a very early age, my mom was working three jobs to support us. Um, She would leave me instructions and I would have to get the kids fed and get them to bed and do my homework. And um, so I learned to follow, you know, to listen and respect the fact that someone else is a leader and know what that looks like. But I also recognized I was both a manager and a leader in those situations. So from a young age, I had responsibility that I couldn't shirk. You know, there was just, I had to do it. And then because we were poor, starting to work at a super early age, that also gave me exposure to good and bad managers and leaders, good and bad employees. And I, so I had a lot of exposure events, sounds like a virus, but a lot of exposure (laughs) events where I was very clear kind of what version of that I wanted to err on the side of. And then having a um, explorer type of a DNA when I was asked to go to Australia to open that first ever Hooters restaurant in Australia, and I'd never been on a plane. So saying yes to that, being thrown into or throwing myself into these situations where there's a lot of chaos and a ton of unfamiliarity and unknown, that also really emphasized my leadership muscle. And um, then I learned how to build trust. I learned the importance of building trust even when you don't know people and they don't know you. I'm only there for 40 days and we have to get a job done together and everything is different every time. The team is different. The culture's different, the menu's different, the laws, the equipment. Um, you know, sometimes there's an armed guard standing at the back of the door because it's in the heart of Mexico. And sometimes there's full liquor and that wasn't the case at Hooters. And sometimes like in China, it's a family restaurant, believe it or not. And so like all the shifts that I had to experience with a team I'd never managed, that feedback from those teams was, was like water weathering rock. Because when I did not lead effectively, it was obvious. There was no nothing made up for it. And when I did lead effectively, it was obvious. And so all that feedback allowed me to accelerate my leadership capabilities at a much faster rate um, than most people who are kind of like in a common gig with a common team and everybody gets to know each other. So you don't really have to get that much better that faster at things. And so those were the I think those were the formative moments or dynamics that led to um, a stronger sort of showing up as a leader on a regular basis. Which also led to the bowling alley strategy, (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm not a good bowler. I'm one of those people that can do the leg behind and look really cool with the Mm -hmm. pose, but it just goes all over the place. Um, But it's the visual that came to mind when I started thinking about growth and growing teams and growing businesses and growing brands and and making a lot of mistakes because usually, you know, being the youngest one, I was also comfortable moving pretty fast without all the resources that are typically required, which means I had an unusual amount of wins and an unusual amount of mistakes. And that taught me 
to think of growth as, you know, throwing the bowling ball right square down the middle of the alley, hitting a strike. That's what I'm going for at all times. But what I'm also going for is staying out of the gutter. Like I won't hit a strike every time, but man, if I could put bumpers in the gutters, in the bowling alley, I could really um, go farther faster because it's just going to ping along instead of like, boop, you know, over in the side. And so um, I realized that there were two forces at play, two things I needed to tell myself and my teams, two mantras that could be the bumpers in the bowling alley. One was um, if we don't, the competition will, or if I don't, someone else will. It's just this realization, this reminder that, um, you know, to have a fire in the belly, the competitive spirit, and maybe the consideration of, well, if I don't do this, someone else will, maybe where I land is cool, right? Let them do it. But at least I'm acknowledging so that when someone else hires the person I didn't, launches the product I didn't, buys the company I didn't, um, that I at least understood that that was a threat. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I gave myself a counterbalancing mantra, which is because the first one is like, say yes to everything, do everything, like go, go, go. The other side is just because I can do something does not mean I should. And that is the, the countermeasure. That is about um, discipline, respect of limited resources, fiduciary responsibility. And if I, but if I only listen to that, I'll never innovate. I'll never do anything. I'll just sit in my comfy little corner and wilt away as a person or as a business. And if I only say yes to everything, I'll drive us like a race car into the wall. And so that, those are the two areas I'm trying to stay out of in their extremes. Mm -hmm. And then using those mantras as a way to kind of create a healthy tension to push myself, my companies or businesses forward. The first time I saw you speak was at uh, an EO event. I'm a, I'm a member, it's an entrepreneurial organization. Great for organization, yeah. Great organization. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've learned so much from them. And I, and I learned a lot from you in that, in that speech. As a corporate executive, what lessons do you have to impart to entrepreneurs? And then as a corporate executive in the, in the food space, right? What, do, what does someone that operates a $5 billion food and beverage company have to impart to an independent restaurant owner? A lot, but I'll say what I have to impart is done with great humility because I re also greatly respect the differences. I mean, certainly there are common themes um, that have to do with psychology, consumer psychology in particular, teams, team building, culture, you know, a lot, there are certain things that are size agnostic. And if you get good at them, they're only more important and more powerful when you're big, or I could argue they're more noticeable if you get them wrong, if you're small. And so those, the lessons I have to impart are in that bucket where I, I can say with confidence, I know this is true from where I sit. It is even more true or similarly true for you. And, and here's why. And those are things such as stay close to the customer. And so, of course, the bigger you are, the harder that is. But I've seen independent restaurateurs and small business owners, when they hit their early growth patch, get more focused on culinary innovation or marketing and PR and very quickly move away from how close they were to that customer in that restaurant when they only had one. The same is true for founders, tech founders, product founders, you know, most of them 
are obsessed with the customer at the beginning, rightly so, because you can't survive without being obsessed with that customer. You don't have enough. But very quickly, some can move away from that. And sometimes they have enough tailwind that unfortunately for them, they don't learn the lesson until it's very expensive because they've been moving away from the customer while what they started is still successful enough to carry them. But then when they actually need to be closer to the customer, they're super far away, mm -hmm. um, intellectually, culturally, in terms of how they structured their company, how they make their decisions, et cetera. Um, so that mantra, stay close to the customer, stay crazy, crazy close to the transaction, because the people who are closest to the action know what the right thing to do is long before the leader makes the decision. And I learned this as a waitress, and it is way more true from the multi-billion dollar company executive seat, but it is still true for the person who is a team of one um, as a, a marketer who's founding their own agency or the person who's a team of three who's making, I don't know, mayonnaise and selling it to people, right? It's just true. And the, the, the farther away from the customer you get, the more, more vulnerable your business is to competitive threats of the next person who's close to the customer. So that obsession is something I impart regularly. And I really poke when people say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know what's going on with my customer. I will start asking questions. Well, what does this mean in their life? And what does it mean for the, who is your customer? Everyone, no, no, <laughs> that's actually not possible. If you try to talk to everyone, you're not gonna really hit the bullseye with anyone. And so who's your target? Um, so that that's a big one that translates. Another one is this concept of don't forget where we came from, but don't let it solely define us. How are we using what we hear from the customer and the employee? You know, they're the ones closest to the transaction, depending on the business. How are we using what we learn by staying close? to stay true to our roots, but not let our roots be our jail. And so that is true in all sizes of business. What's the, what's the innovation? What's the pivot? What's the evolution? What are you learning, adapting? Maybe it's just you change the portion size by two ounces. Maybe it's what you call a product now that you're talking to your customers is actually limiting receptivity and trial. And so you learn a little, you name it something different, and you're not obsessed with just protecting that old name. So those are two, I could go on and on, but those are two lessons that um, from where I sit are still incredibly true that I actually learned from my teeny tiny single unit days that are versions of advice that I give to founders, entrepreneurs, and even small business owners. What pivots have you guys made at Focus Brands that you think would be valuable lessons for uh, independent restaurant owners? I remember early on, maybe seven years ago, we, I was, I've always stayed close to the tech community, much closer than others in my industry. Um, and that was more noticeable back then. And I remember when I came to our CEO and I was the president of Cinnabon and I was commuting between Atlanta and New York. And I was an early beta user of Uber because um, it was only in a few cities back then. And I saw this thing called Postmates, which existed before DoorDash or Uber, before Uber was ever even touching food. And I came back to focus and I said, I don't think it's gonna be big right now, but we had better sign up with a, this food delivery company to figure it out because when it gets big, we don't wanna be at the beginning of that journey. And we were the first 
multi-brand and first national company to sign up with Postmates, at least that I'm aware of, that I knew of publicly, because that was in 2004, I think. Um, Could be wrong. I've got to go back and look at my picture. I have a picture of me with the first Annie Ann's ever delivered by Postmates in New York in front of the Ace Hotel with the bike rider and the bag. And that was a big, it wasn't a full pivot of the business model, but it was a big leap of faith because it did not add any revenue or profit. They were only in 16 cities and half of our brands were in malls. And it was one of those things where I came back and just said, humor me. (laughs) And there were some franchisees who were already onto this and who were serious believers and who were willing to sign the agreements, even though the commission rates were cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs high, like so crazy. Um, Still are, but even were more so back then. But they were willing to to try it. And it was so incremental. It wasn't threatening um, at the time. And so that was a big one. That was a big shift that felt like it was a experiment not needed but it was absolutely needed then because we were mid cap companies and it allowed us to be far ahead of the game as this became far more common with other big players in the market. And we could ramp up our capabilities in a way that put our franchisees at a bit of an advantage. Another pivot, maybe the one I talk about the most or one of the ones I'm most well known for is um, part of the strategy of turning around Cinnabon out of the recession was really leaning into the multi-channel model of having Cinnabon products in grocery stores and on other restaurant chains menus. That was big for a brand that at that time was 25% licensing this, these products that are in grocery, mostly Pillsbury at the time. So 75% franchise around the world, malls, airports, etc. Today, it is literally the opposite. It is 30% brick and mortar franchise and still growing, by the way, that's not as a result of one shrinking and the other just taking its place. They right. have both skyrocketed, but the total market for grocery for other restaurants is so much bigger than locations in malls or airports. And so the licensing business leaning into that, um, putting product on Burger King's menu, now on Pizza Hut's menu, in grocery stores, making coffee and coffee creamer and all all these other things that developed beyond the core licensed um, Pillsbury Cinnabon relationship was was massive. It was complicated to manage. It was emotional for the franchisees. It required a lot of strategic thought, a lot of institutional frameworks that had to be put in place, tons of mistakes. Some of the worst moments of my career were during that time, best and worst. Uh, again, big wins, big mistakes and big leadership lessons. And so that was a big pivot you know, to, to say franchising in our historic legacy venue is no longer our sole route to market. And in fact, the others could be the same or greater. That That's a big, big, big shift. Well, and that's true for the industry overall at this point, right? Like when I opened my restaurant, the business plan wasn't a one cheater. It was like a one paragraph, right? It was we're going to open this restaurant, people are gonna show up, they're gonna eat, and hopefully as quickly as possible, they're going to leave and more people will fill those spaces. Right. And that's it, right? One revenue stream for a multi-million dollar business with really? paying tens of thousands of dollars in rent every month. And you look back and you just say, I mean, it never made sense. You have to have multiple revenue streams going simultaneously. That's right. You have to be in the business of food. You know, everything that's going on around the world is, I've heard everyone use the same word. It's just been an accelerant with maybe a few exceptions, but in general, it's been an accelerant of 
trends and dynamics and truths that were there buried below the surface or starting in certain markets to rear their ugly head. Um, and this is just like the tide receding and you're like, oh shit, look at all these sharp shells, <laughs> you know, that I've been walking over. I love it. I love it for the fact that imagine a business starting today, you know, all this, right? You're going to start oh, yeah. a, a restaurant today. You don't have to do it this way, but you can be enabled with low code, no code technology for an app and for loyalty programs and for delivery. You open a restaurant. If you're really good at branding and you have some core products, I'm going to make a little grab and go of that for people to take home and maybe family meals so people can maybe I'll sell my meat by the pound if I want to. And my local Whole Foods is really drumming up local restaurant business. So I'm actually going to sell prepared meals via Whole Foods. And then my the product I'm most famous for, I can actually produce out of a commercial or cloud kitchen, have a DTC business and ship it to people because they love it. And I can do some delivery only, but like, right, like just and, and, and. And as long as that's done in a way that elevates the brand, stays connected to its truth and what about it is loved and magic, it can be done in a way that does not dilute the brand, but rather builds affinity and love and even a defensible moat around the brand. Um, and it's far more accessible to have all those revenue streams and all those channels now if someone wants to pay attention and treat it like a business. This is an industry podcast, and at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice you'd like to share? My advice is lean in to your founder story. People want to support people, and customers are learning that there is a human behind their restaurant. If they didn't know it before, they, they really know it now. So find ways to tell your story, social media, any media, flyers, remind people of the humans behind the work. It will always serve you well. And then if you're not comfortable with technology, you need to get comfortable, but that's okay. Find people, your, your son, your daughter, your kids, your, your wait staff. There are people who can point you in the direction of affordable resources that will bring customers to you help you think of creative ways to get your product to other customers. Don't get caught up in, well, I'm a restaurant, I'm not a grocery store. Yes, you are. I'm not a restaurant, I'm a restaurant, I'm not a gas station. I'm not a, a grab and go. Maybe you can be. And so my, I guess the advice to wrap that up outside of remembering to bring the humanity forward is the line that my mom always writes on my birthday card or a version of it. Don't forget where you came from. Your truth is in your roots. And I said it earlier, but your past is not your jail. And don't forget where you came from, but don't let it solely define you. Maybe the thing that honors your past, your roots, the, the core of your business is in fact um, a very big change from where you are. And don't look at it as a departure from the past. Look at it as, as this really powerful branch off of your very strong tree that might bear the most fruit of any branch coming off of your tree. That's Kat Cole, Chief Operating Officer of Focus Brands. Be sure to follow her on Twitter using the handle ATL. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H. 
K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.